Welcome to Spark Science. I'm your host, Regina Barber de Graff, and I teach physics and astronomy at Western Washington University. And this is our season six finale. We made it, folks. Thanks for sticking with us and listening to stories which feature diverse scientists and conservationists around the world. Our guest for this episode is Louis Ngluka, who's a conservationist in Zambia. She's a co-founder of Women for Conservation, Zambia's first network for women working on wildlife initiatives. Louis is also involved in the This Is Not A Game bushmeat campaign, which tackles illegal bushmeat trade. She also happens to be one of my top go-to pop culture experts. In this episode, we speak about her path to becoming a wildlife activist, how to share a message that will impact a community, and what conservation media looks like around the world. Thank you for coming to talk to me today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. When we talk, usually it's about TV. So to actually to actually <laughs> talk about conservation and your career, I want to know more. I want to know how it all started. So let's start at the beginning. Okay, how it, it, it really depends on how far back you want to go. I am Zambian. I was born in Zambia, but I moved to Botswana, which is right next door at two years old. So I, I did all of my schooling, my education there. And I was very fortunate to grow up in the heart of the Okavango Delta. So if you know anything about conservation in Africa, the Okavango Delta is very important, protected area. And so I spent a lot of my childhood around there. Interesting enough, when I went to university, the only thing that I knew that I liked was science. So I decided I would study medicine. But that dream came to a screeching halt by like my first lecture. I, I think I was pretty certain, no, this is not for me. But it took me two years to communicate that to everybody else involved. The one thing that I did like, aside from just general science and what I was learning in pre-med was ecology. So then I shifted from pre-med to ecology. And I, I think it just fitted how my mind works. I'm really interested in loads of different things at the same time. So ecologies like plants and animals and people and how everything is interconnected. And so by the time I was graduating from university, I went back to Maun, the town where I, I grew up most of my life, which is right on the edge of the Okavango Delta. And I got an internship studying African wild dogs and their behavior. And I think that's what first got me interested in research. So I understood, okay, I like, I like research. I like asking quite scientific questions and I like getting answers. But I didn't think that African wild dogs was the right fit for me. I just didn't see any longevity for me. I mean, they were really cool, really fascinating, charismatic animals. I, I was just interested in a lot more than that specific study. So I moved back to Zambia. When I moved here, one of the first opportunities that came my way was, again, research-based. And that, I think, just confirmed what I already had in my head, like, I like this. I like asking questions. And that led to me doing another study looking at the consumption of wild meat or bush meat, as we call it here, in Lusaka, where I was now staying. So Lusaka is the capital city of Zambia. Yeah, trying to understand why do people consume wild meat? So a bit of background. I think your audience would maybe think of it as like venison or maybe bison meat or something like that. And it's very popular in, in Zambia and in Lusaka especially. People consume a lot of meat from wild animals. I think part of it is like it goes back to our history as hunters and gatherers. And also now being an urbanized population, a lot of people have moved to the cities, but before they lived in villages and they 
they lived off the land and wild meat was one of their main sources of protein. So for many reasons, people consume wild meat. Like I said, that I think sense of nostalgia, sense of, you know, eating something healthier because now we're eating a lot more farmed meat and it's not necessarily healthy for us. And I mean, there's a myriad of reasons we could talk about that, but well, I, I anyway. like that you said that. I like that you said my listeners would think about it more like venison or buffalo meat because I think a gut reaction for some people in America would be like, why would people eat wild meat? And I'm like, you do that all yeah. the time. Like you have your uncle who you know hunts venison, and or we have Trader Joe's that sells like the buffalo burgers, and people are like, oh, so great, right? So like it's it's totally relatable. Yeah, exactly. It's. It's the same thing. I mean, maybe packaged a bit differently, but I think the idea or the sentiment behind it is the same. So I started studying that. And one of our main findings in our study was that there was just a lack of awareness about the dangers of wild meat because most of it was consumed illegally. Like you said, it it might start off someone having an uncle who has a hunting license, but once there's so much demand, it turns into people becoming professional poachers sourcing this meat for people in the city and people in the city aren't thinking about where the meat comes from how it's processed and all of that so that led me to a career shift into more awareness raising and thinking about how we can educate zambians about the dangers of this meat uh, and launching a campaign called this is not a game yes it's a shameless pun on gay meat uh, and talking about bushmeat being illegal, being dangerous and carrying diseases and trying to offset that with legal meat that's been sourced ethically and isn't as bad for the environment or isn't bad for the environment. And that, that was an important piece of the puzzle for us, not just saying, no, don't do this, but providing an alternative that works for the population that encourages supporting local businessmen and women and the economy. So we... We need to get more women in conservation, interested about conservation issues, but a lot of them don't have a space to to learn. A lot of the conservationists are living in like remote areas and national parks. And when they do come to urban areas, they're so busy trying to, you know, buy supplies and stuff that even if you are interested in conservation, you don't know who to talk to. And if you are working in this space, again, everybody is busy with everything else and we don't often network. Men are very good at leveraging their relationship. If a guy needs to get something done, he he knows like 10 other guys he can call in that industry and can help him. And women have a, a challenge. One, sometimes you're the only woman in that space. And I think sometimes are also taught to compete with one another rather than collaborate. So what we created were these networking events where we have quarterly events and get a prominent woman in conservation in Zambia to come talk about her work, talk about what she does, but also just get a a space for women to connect and let them organically meet and see where they can take it from that. So we started off with just, you know, drinks and a talk and questions and answers after that to going to like protected areas, national parks. And what's been really cool is seeing people take ownership of it as well and being like, oh, well, we'd like to sponsor the next event. We'd like to host it. That when we first started it, we thought it would just be for women who are already working in the conservation space. But a lot of young young girls and young women who are interested in conservation but never had access to it are now getting interested in thinking well how can I support this work you know I'm a lawyer I'm a doctor or whatever I'm really interested in this how can I be more supportive we're speaking to storyteller and conservation activist Louis Nguluka about wildlife crime in Zambia 
so that then leads me to the work that I do now, which is awareness raising. So I manage um, a department for my organization, Wildlife Crime Prevention, and we're interested in preventing all sorts of wildlife crime in Zambia. I think some of our biggest issues in Zambia and across the continent would be you know, the poaching of elephants, for, primarily for their ivory, rhinos for their rhino horn, pangolins for their scales and sometimes their meat. Of course, a lot of that goes to Far East Asia because there's uh-huh. a huge demand for those products. But there is also a domestic market that we, we are interested in and in educating the people about how this affects us. Because I think more and more we're seeing a lot of behavior change campaigns focusing on Far East Asia and targeting those audiences but no one is really thinking about the source market and how people here are affected so that's the work that i do one of the things that became very obvious is there's a huge disparity or there's a huge gap once you start working in conservation in in zambia and in africa you don't see a lot of people who look like me in especially when you go higher up and you start looking at management positions Uh, Of course, you'll see lots of indigenous Zambians working in government, but when you go into private sector or into nonprofit, I think it it generally attracts a different type of person and that person isn't always indigenous Zambian or a woman. And so my colleagues and I wanted to start something that would encourage more women to go into conservation. And I've talked a bit more about race and why you might not see as many black people in certain parts of conservation, but women as well. You know, a lot of the work is remote. It involves living in like rural areas or living in the middle of a national park without access to some of the amenities that people are used to. But also there's what I would call black tax. And it's an African term, I think. And and that's the idea that when you get educated, you still have siblings and a whole family to take care of. So you often don't have the privilege of leaving the city or wherever you grew up behind to go, you know, live in the bush and just chase animals. And so conservation doesn't always attract women. It, it rarely attracts young Zambians as well, because being raised to become doctors or lawyers or teachers, something tangible, something financially stable that can help you provide for your family and for your community. And so Women for Conservation is a mixture of both of those things. So you're dedicated to these awareness campaigns. How do you sell your message? You know, like it's really hard to do it effectively and to make sure people are actually going to take it in and listen or not be turned away. So you've made some films, you do presentations, you're involved in like creating conferences, but like, what's your, what's your like core goal? Like, how do you do it so that you are being effective or, you know, what's, what's your method? Well, I think that it helps coming from a research background, both me and a couple of people on the team as well come from a research background. So anything that we do is always rooted in in data and uh, collecting as much data as we can. So for example, with our Bushmeat campaign, it was very important even when we were doing our research that we asked the right questions. So we asked not just questions about people's consumption of bushmeat, you know, what are they eating? When are they eating it? How are they eating it? But also just general media questions, you know, how do you access information in general, not even just conservation information? Right. Are you reading newspapers? Are you listening to radio? If so, when, where, how? And also trying to get perceptions they had about conservation. So what do you think about national parks? What do you think the value of wildlife is? So we ask a lot of general questions that help us get a good idea of who our target audience is, 
what they care about, and working with a great production team as well. We've been very fortunate that I think we try to understand our strengths. I think something that's important for us as a team is understanding that while we have great information about, you know, conservation, we are not necessarily expert filmmakers or expert, you know, media people. I I think over the years we've learned a lot and we we do a lot better than we used to do, but we still try our best to partner with the best in the business to make sure that our message is not just informational, but it's attention grabbing and it engages people. So I, I gave an example of a radio drama that we did early last year. And that was about, again, conservation, human wildlife conflict, engaging communities and helping them understand the value of conservation because especially in areas where there's a lot of human wildlife conflict there sometimes is resentment for wildlife and the way you know the wildlife seems to be more valued than the people who live in those areas yeah and so going back to what i was saying about research it was very important for us to do research in that community understand how people perceive wildlife how they perceive conservationists how they perceive law enforcement and then think about the best way to get this message across. With the resources given, the best way was a radio drama because people in those communities listen to loads of radio. They don't have television. They're not on social media a lot. And also with radio, you have various things that you could do. You could do a chat show. We decided to go with a drama and it was very important to us at the beginning that the drama not be very obviously about conservation. It was about a man who who falls on hard times. Okay. His wife is heavily pregnant. This is his second wife. He has a daughter by his first wife who passed away and his daughter falls critically ill and needs to be taken to the hospital and he loses his job. And so now he has to figure out how is he going to provide for his family? And his brother comes through and says, well, I have a job for you. You know, I'm always doing like these odd jobs and and someone just offered me loads of money to transport some goods from one place to another. And he's not very specific about what the goods are, Mm -hmm. but it turns out you know, around about episode two or three, you realize that the goods are actually ivory and it involves going into a national park and poaching. So you're slowly teasing out the ideas, but you're hooking people in, like you're reeling people in. Well, people can't see us. We're, we're video chatting, but they can't see the giant yeah. smile on my face. Like yeah. I, totally, I totally want to listen to this drama. Exactly. I think that's something that we always try to do. And I, I've mentioned this example because we worked with a really cool creative agency and really cool script writers and voice artists and making sure that everything was genuine, authentic to the audience. So making sure that the right voices were picked, that the right accents were picked. You know, I'm sure you've watched shows or movies and the accents are off and you can't concentrate because the whole time you're thinking <laughs> that is not that is not how we sound you yeah know? these are huge I, I i think one thing that i've learned doing this work is that it takes a really good team and it takes the right people and and you ought to invest in getting the right people whenever possible i mean that's a that's really hard right because um at least for me and this program, there's kind of only a few people and we don't have the resources. I'm, I'm like really happy that you have the resources to do all that and to actually build a team. But it's, it's hard. It's hard to get that. I think we're very fortunate that we have amazing donors and amazing support. But there's always more that you'd like to do. But I think what makes a good communicator is reaching people where they are in that moment. Rather than trying to force them to come to you and to think like you do, you are engaging them in a way that 
they understand. So there's loads of skill sets that you need for that, you know, understanding human psychology, human behavior. A lot of our campaigns are behavior change campaigns. So understanding what motivates someone to change their behavior, understanding how long that takes, understanding what, what are they interested in now? And how can I reach them where they are now? Where are they spending their time? What are they listening to? What's cool? How are people talking? I mean, these are some of the con concepts that people in just regular marketing use, but I think they apply to science and communication as well. And that's how you end up with a, a lot of brands being tone deaf. And a lot of brands are getting called out for it now because they have no idea what their target audience is interested in. And so learning is necessary. It's, and I, I think especially as scientists, sometimes we can get very arrogant and treat everybody like lesser human beings for not knowing the information that we know. But I think that most people are very intelligent. They're just intelligent in different ways. And just because they're not thinking about science and data all the time does not mean that they don't have something to share. They don't have something worth understanding. So I think compassion is, a, is another thing that I find very necessary in this work. And compassion helps you become a better learner and a better communicator. This is Spark Science, and we're talking with co-founder of Women for Conservation, Luin Gluka, about who is seen as a conservationist and how compassion is needed for change. How has your field been basically portrayed in media? You know, like now you are being part of making that media, but let's go back a little bit, maybe from when you were growing up or maybe other media that you see, is there good media that's showing kind of what you're doing in awareness and is there bad media what would you like to share with my audience that it probably is not consuming the same media or engaging yeah. in the same media well I was, I was kind of thinking about this the other day just thinking about how important representation is on tv i mean i think i mean it's it's important everywhere, but TV for a lot of us is what raised us and how we got our view of the world. And I was thinking about whether there were people like me on TV when I was growing up. And I couldn't think of a single person. I could think of, you know, like Jane Goodall and David Attenborough. And I think they were like the big conservationists and nature people. And I grew up watching their, especially David Attenborough's documentaries, and I loved them. But it gave a perception that that is what a conservationist looks like, or that's what a nature biologist looks like. And for kids growing up in Africa, that isn't always the best thing, because if people don't look like you, then you don't think that you can do it too. And so I, th I think it's, it's slowly starting to change. One of the things that we're really interested in is creating content for an African audience. And so that means that it might not necessarily be relatable to a European audience or to an American audience, but that's fine because that's, that's not who we're trying to reach. You guys have yeah, a lot have, of your own. We, we have a lot of stuff. It's okay. You don't need to make yeah, stuff for us. Yeah, exactly. I do see things changing. I mean, for example, the work that our friend Noel does yeah, Noel Cox and, and his work in South Africa and also just across the continent, like changing the stories that are told, but also changing the people that tell the stories because right. you cannot help but tell stories from your perspective. All of us do. And I, I think about that myself as well. I, I come from a place of privilege and I try to acknowledge that I do not have the traditional stereotypical Zambian upbringing. 
So I have to think about that in my work sometimes. Like, am I the best person to tell the story? Or is there someone else who could do it better? So going back to TV, do we really need to see a Louis on TV? Or is there someone else on the team who's better off doing that? I think that's something I try to push as well, to have less of me and more of people who represent the majority of Zambians on TV, on radio, on social media, speaking the right language, using the right tone, and just connecting with the audience in a way that they they understand. I mean, that that is something that I think my colleagues at Western could hear, can hear too, right? I mean, here in the US, we were just talking about all the all the material we have, right? We have Nova, we have blue chip films. And you're right. I mean, I think that the person that we see hosting a lot of those nature films are white guys or white ladies drop into countries in Africa, drop into Asia. And you're right. It's, it's very hard for them, as well-meaning as they are, to not tell their story from their perspective. Just on that, I think another frustrating thing is because they just drop in. So you have these, you know, blue chip documentaries with like multi-million dollar budgets yeah. that come shoot a great documentary for Nagio, CBS, for BBC, and the people in that community never get to see it. So they will never know their own environment or the value of it. And it's told for a different audience. Like I said, unfortunately, I grew up watching this stuff, but now I look back on it, like it was great to a point. It would have been really nice to see someone else, someone indigenous person tell that story because I think it would be more impactful to the audience. Yeah. There's just no money to be made in Africa from filmmaking for young Africans, for nature and environment filmmaking right now. So it doesn't attract a lot of young Africans. I mean, one, we're trying to, we're trying to create a film industry, period. So is there anything I didn't ask you that you'd like to share with our audience? If there's one thing I would encourage people to do is just think more about your audience. Think more about who is really watching and, and how you can impact them. And think more about people of color as well. I think they're relatively ignored in the science space and things are changing. But whenever you get the opportunity, give the people whose story it is the opportunity to tell the story. If you can be a conduit for someone else to be to tell the story, you'll still get credit for being a producer or whatever it is that you do. I think if anything that we're seeing in this climate that we're living in right now, which is pretty chaotic, is that when you don't respect people, when you don't respect their stories and you don't respect their dignity, it always comes back and manifests itself in different ways. And I, I think storytelling and representation is a huge part of that. I agree. Thank you for talking to us, Louis. You're so awesome. Thank you. I'd like to thank the always kind and thoughtful Louis Ngluka for speaking with me about conservation and the work that's being done to support wildlife in Zambia. Spark Science is produced in collaboration with KMRE and Western Washington University. Today's episode was recorded in Bellingham, Washington, in my house, on my computer, during the 2020 statewide homestay order. Our producers are Suzanne Blaze and myself, Regina Barber de Graff. Our audio engineer for today is Julia Thorpe. If you missed any of the show, go to our website, sparksciencenow.com. If there's a science idea you're curious about, send us a message on Twitter or Facebook at SparkScienceNow. Thank you for listening to Spark Science.